Welcome to the Omni Win Project Podcast. My name is Duncan Autry. I am a conflict transformation catalyst, the creator of the Omni Win Project, and I am your host. The goal of this project is to facilitate and accelerate the healing and evolution of our democratic systems and our political culture so that together we can co-create a future that works for everyone. So that means that if you're tired of the polarization and divisiveness, or if you're worried about the impact of today's decisions on future generations, you are in the right place. I believe that the world is ready for things to change, and I know that we already have the answers to almost all the problems that we're facing. And my goal is to share them with you. You can find more information and media and resources and other inspiration at OmniWinProject.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. Thank you for being part of the OmniWin Project. And now, let's get on to the show. The guests on today's show are Guy and Heidi Burgess. Heidi and Guy are the co-directors of Beyond Intractability, which is a large online knowledge base on conflict resolution, peace building, and now also strengthening democracy. They have been sharing knowledge and information on the Beyond Intractability website for over 30 years. And I invite them to this show because they are pillars in our field. And because of their work, they have an encyclopedic understanding of everything going on in the world of conflict transformation. I also feel a deep alignment with their current project, the Constructive Conflict Initiative. This is a clarion call for us to dramatically expand our efforts to improve our society's ability to constructively address the full scale and complexity of the challenges posed by destructive conflicts. They want to raise awareness about the severity of political polarization, and they want to explore the many methodologies that are already available to address these problems. In this conversation, we talk about the sources of polarization, we talk about how conflict is a social learning system, and the need for us to find a shared and guiding vision. We also talk about the idea of mobilizing a massively parallel peace-building and decision-making movement so that everyone can do their part to support the healing of our democracy. And we talk about the role of conflict professionals, and we get into an ongoing debate about the importance and the risks of whether we choose partisanship, neutrality, or principled impartiality in the face of a polarized society. This conversation was recorded in September of 2022. Thank you so much for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast, and now... Please enjoy this conversation with Heidi and Guy Burgess. Well, hi. Hello, hello. Welcome, Heidi, Guy. It's so great to talk to you. Thank you for being on the podcast today. We're pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting us. You know, I just appreciate all that you all have been doing for so long in the conflict field, the conflict you know, transformation field, resolution field. And your website, Beyond Intractability, has been just like a great resource for me for so long. Thank you for having that out there. And every time I need a summary of, you know, this book or that book, you know, it's there waiting for me. And so 
I guess I just maybe we can start by just talking a little bit about what is beyond intractability. What are you all up to in your work? It, it seems like this is probably your life work. And can you just share a little bit about that? Well, there's a lot of different answers. I might start with one, and I'm sure Heidi has some different twists on. But the reason that we've been so interested in the internet and so interested, basically spent our career trying to put within the context of Beyond Intractability, which is a knowledge-based project, really. And there were predecessor projects that we've been doing this since before there was literally an internet, before there were PCs. And we keep being able to refine and develop it because the technology advances. But the thing that is so interesting about internet-based learning systems is that they're different. If you have, well, the notion is that people who are confronted with a conflict problem, most of the time they know how to handle conflict problems because if you don't, you go nuts. But every so often you run into something that you know is really difficult. And boy, you'd sure like to have some ideas on how to do differently and better. And so you call up the university and say, gee, I have a conflict problem. Could you help? And they say, we have degree programs. It will cost you 200, 300, however many hundred thousand dollars, four years of your life. And well, I might talk about your problem, but it'll be way too slow. Training programs are a little better. They want only a few hundred dollars, and the training program isn't going to be where you are. And again, it isn't going to talk about you as thing. The thing that's so exciting about the internet, we've been trying to build such systems, and we still haven't succeeded yet, but we're getting closer, is that you can de deliver instant free mini lessons on any conflict problem to people who are looking for answers at the time they're looking for answers pretty much over the world. And one of the things we've tried to do is write in translatable English. So as the translation engines get better, it, it really is a global system. So that's one way of looking at what now. I'm sure Heidi has a friend. Well, well, you're right. And it's a story that goes back to before we started Beyond Intractability, really. But email, rudimentary email existed. And we got an email from a fellow in Uzbekistan who said to us that he had just gotten a degree in conflictology, which is what they called it. And he was still looking for information. He wanted to learn everything that we knew about conflict resolution because our name was already kind of out there. And I naively wrote back to him and said, well, we just published an encyclopedia on, on, of conflict resolution, and you can get it from ABC Clio for $55. And he wrote back and he said, $55 is my annual salary, but I could download anything that you put on the internet. And that was pretty much the end of our writing books. We <laughs> said a free book. And then we decided from then on that if we wanted to reach folks like him, which really was our goal, that we ought to put it up on the internet. And there was a time when people suggested when we were trying to raise money, they said that we ought to go to a fee service and charge for the information. And we resisted that because it was completely contrary 
to our goal of helping out that follow in Uzbekistan and everywhere else around the world. So we've been just focused ever since that time on only writing stuff on the internet. We published, we just recently published a journal article, which is rare for us. But we did talk the journal into making it available for free. So it's still up there on the internet for free, which really is what we've been trying to do. Wow. I actually really appreciate that story. And I think it is really important to hold in perspective of what the, you know, the global economy looks like, right? Because the internet not only makes things you know, searchable, available, but then also, yeah, affordable. And that instantaneous aspect is so important, you know, and it takes a lot of time to take a course or read a book or travel somewhere. So this is, it's wonderful. And another story we used to tell that I actually haven't told it for quite a number of years, and it's, I think, even more relevant today. But the Internet created the world's most fantastic vanity publishing system, that there's information on anything. And you can find any opinion on anything that you want very easily. And the deal is that if you start charging for quality information, people will just go to the free stuff. And so part of what we've tried to do is to put quality information out there in a way that's easy to find that really competes with what was originally vanity publishing stuff. And now it's a lot more disturbing. Alone that one of the things we'll talk about later is how how many people are out there deliberately trying to inflame tensions and drive us apart using the same system. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it is a, a a complex thing. You know, it it seems like you know we always with the access of all the information of all of humanity, you know, at our fingertips. It seems like this would be a utopia and it's not exactly that it's not we're dark sides that nobody saw when they started this yeah so you have you know over many years you know created this you know in a certain way this library dedicated to the field of conflict resolution conflict transformation some the conflict field we'll just call it for right. now so what do you see as important to the conflict field? Like, what is the thing that you want the world to know about what this can offer to, to the world out there? Well, we compare conflict and now more specifically hyperpolarization, but it relates to both, to the climate situation. We call it a climate change class problem or type of problem. The thing about climate change is that it's affecting everybody all over the globe. And it is an extremely complex problem. We don't entirely understand it. We don't know how to control it. We don't know how to measure it. We don't know how to fix it. We've got some ideas. We're trying things out. But it's not a man made system. Certainly, people are contributing to it, but the whole system. Is it an engineered system so it can't be fixed the way an engineered system can be fixed? And it is a very serious problem that threatens to 
upend life for many, many people all over the globe. And conflict has the same dimensions. It has the potential for causing great harm to people all over the world. It is somewhat understood, but not entirely, because we don't understand any social systems in their entirety. We know some things about what causes it, but we don't know that much, and we don't know entirely how to fix it. And again, if we're going to fix either of these problems, it's going to take the efforts of everybody. It can't just be solutions that are given to us by experts. Everybody across the world is going to have to be involved in fixing it. And the reason that we're so concerned about conflict is that we think that until we learn, we as a society and as a globe, learn how to work with, manage, resolve conflicts better, we're not going to fix anything else. The reason, the main reason why we can't in this country deal effectively with climate is we're still fighting over whether or not climate change is real. And we're certainly fighting about whose fault it is and who should pay for it. And until we can resolve those conflicts, we're not going to make any progress on climate. And you can say the same thing about inequality. You can say the same thing about health care, any issue that you care to mention. I get my students to list all the issues that they care about, and then I explain to them that every single one of them is as bad as it is, and we're not making progress with it because we're fighting about what to do and who should pay. And until we can figure out how to deal with those conflicts, we're stuck. Mm -hmm. The story I tell is when I was in graduate or just out of graduate school, I had occasion to work at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. This was 10 years before Google thinks that the climate change movement started. There were a bunch of climate scientists who worked in the same suite of offices. And these were guys who go to academic conferences and give papers. And they were sort of whispering in the halls about how, hey, they've sort of caught on to the fact that we're transforming a global climate system. And they say, hey, we, we can't just write papers. We have to transform the entire global energy system. And what we've seen in the intervening 40 plus years is the effort to develop to try to do that. And what we're arguing is a similar kind of transformation. The truth is, I think the conflict field sort of where climate change was four years ago. There are a few people around that see the problem as a conflict process problem. If you ask people about all of the problems in the world, whether it's climate change or inequality or pandemic or whatever, People will come back with, well, these are my positions. This is what I think we ought to do. They don't think of it in terms of a process problem. But we have to fix the process whereby we work together to figure out answers that will really work. Instead, we wind up pushing our own pet solutions, which tend to be not very well thought out, against other people's pet solutions. And as Heidi says, we can't solve anything. So we've got to think through this. And this involved really addressing the complexity of modern society. 
one of my other little lectures points out that conflict resolvers tend to think in terms of triad. There's two parties and a mediator, three people. When we're talking about society-wide conflict, we're talking in terms of hundreds of millions of people or even billions of people. That's on the order of, what, seven, eight orders of magnitude, factors of 10 difference. And for comparison, the difference between walking around town and taking the International Space Station around the world is four orders of magnitude. That's the difference between conventional and nuclear explosives. So we need to jump like a thousand times more than that. And that requires a radically different way of thinking, which is going to take another generation or two. But we've got to start working on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Yeah, let me see if I can kind of summarize and, uh, this and because and, I have a lot of alignment here. So... And it, that was, you know, I came out of high school wanting to make world peace, realized I couldn't figure out how to do that, studied international relations, still didn't know how to do that. And then I went and learned how to be a mediator. And I was like, oh, okay, great. We can do this. Two people, we totally got it. And then I learned more, some more dialogue processes and like, okay, 10 people, we can do this. Okay, learn some more processes. 100 people, we can do this. I even seen some interesting things with a thousand people that having a coherent conversation with a little technology a little bit and okay, but then now we have a couple more or a lot of orders of magnitude to go still and and so the scale question i think we'll we'll come to that some more because I think it's really important, but what I just want to emphasize here is this kind of realization that I think a lot of people in our field have that the issue we're dealing with is not, is it this the answer or is this the answer? That the, it's the bigger question, which is, is this the right process for figuring out and not even the right answer, but just the best answer that we can come up with for now, <laughs> which is an interesting kind of puzzle, right? Uh, whether it's, yeah, the oceans or terrorism or the climate or, 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 you know, bioweapons or whatever our thing that we're concerned about or you know, police or racism and whatever the issue is, we can come up with a million solutions. There's a lot of solutions. We can, that we don't have, we have a lot of experts. We have a lot of people who know what they're talking about. People lived experiences that are on the front lines. We have stakeholders. There's plenty of people that have ideas. The question is, is how do we get them to talk to each other? And so recognizing that there's a process and that if we could actually just engage in a process that can help people effectively share their ideas, wrap their mind around whatever is going on. I want to put a little carrot in what yeah. you just said. When you said, how do we get them to talk to each other? I would say, and listen to each other. I think yeah. everybody's talking, but they're not listening. And one of the key ideas that everybody uses in mediation and we teach in conflict 101 classes is active listening. And that's just central because 
even when people think they're listening, they're doing what we call comeback listening, which is listening to what the other person's saying so you can come up with a gotcha and counter what they were saying and prove that you're right and the other side's wrong. And that's yeah, not getting us anywhere either and talking about help if the other side's just doing the gotcha listening. So I think getting people to do real active, deep, respectful listening and be open to getting one's mind changed. I think that's one of the big issues and that's one of the things that we'll talk about later when we're talking about our discussion with Bernie is that we feel as if he and Jackie maybe aren't as open to getting changing their mind as we would hope. It's also a market share problem that even if you can arrange these dialogues and figure out how to have a lot of people involved in it, those conflict interactions, the constructive ones, are still a pretty small share of the everyday conflict-related interactions that we have when we watch the news. The news, we tend to tune into a channel that says, hey, our side's right and the other side's wrong, and we get lots of feel-good communication that reinforces all of our confirmation bias. And then there are, of course, the media companies that have figured out how they can promote viewers by keeping people riled up and angry because it's something that's really all that dangerous. You've got to pay attention. So you've got to figure out how you change the larger information bubble that surrounds everybody, not just to have a set of interactions that somehow show you how to do it right. And that requires, that means that media reform is part of the whole process. And that gets to be more than just mediation or dialogue. One of the things that we're trying to do with our constructive conflict initiative is get other people from other fields involved because we don't have all the answers by any means. This is a much bigger problem than our field. So, yeah, I can feel the magnetism of wanting to get into all the different pieces. We're, that's where we're going to go right now. I, I just, I wanted to capture this piece about the market share. Well, first listening, yes. <laughs> like I always just say it. One thing you can do is just like listen until you're sure that you understand the other person and they agree that you understand them. Like if you can do that, then you've covered a lot of ground. This guy, Daniel Schmockenberger, is like one of the smarter people that I know out there who's thinking about all the issues and really having a good understanding of the big picture and complexity of the issues we're facing. I just saw a video where he talks about what he calls rural omega. And that's basically... If I find myself being confused or I think that someone's wrong or, you know, I think that they're being stupid or whatever, assume that I don't understand what they're saying yet <laughs> and like, give them the benefit of the doubt and just try to find out what is the signal that they're trying to put through. Like, what is the actual meaning of something they're trying to say? Now, of course, sometimes people are just trolling us and just they're actually just messing around and they're not actually trying to say something but but if someone is trying to say something figure out what is the the actual information so that you can respond to that and and that's just going to improve the quality if, if that was just something we could just shift in the world that would have cascading effects to be amazing and most people's experiences about talking about these things are not 
the effective generative collaborative stuff that we're talking about, right? So one, we have a bunch of people out there who call themselves mediators that are just doing, you know, negotiation and, you know, competitive negotiation. And then we have debate. And then we have all these like town halls or, you know, everyone can just imagine, you know, oh, great, let's go talk about healthcare. And they can remember when people were smashing the rooms and, you know, and freaking out or on TV oh, every day. We have, you know, this side versus this side. So we have almost no examples or there's a preponderance of examples of ineffective communication about important issues. And my girlfriend was just telling me about a colleague of hers and they're trying to figure out how they could work on a watershed. That's just water resource engineer. So they're trying to figure out how to deal with the whole watershed, with all these different stakeholders and players. And they're talking about collaborative dialogue. And he's like, I've done collaborative dialogue. It didn't work. We came up with the principle that we're all in this together. And then we just fought for three months. And then like, did you have a facilitator or did you have anyone with any skills that could help you have that conversation? And he's like, well, no. Wait, what are you talking about? And that was the thing. It was like, wow, even when people want to work together, if they don't have the process or the tools, then it just makes sense. We believe this is important. I think we have a sense of it's important. And, and I'm sure that's going to come through in our conversation. So I would actually like to kind of step in. It was, was your constructive conflict initiative that really gave me the like, oh my gosh, I have to talk to these people because uh, we're really trying to do something really similar, right? Recognizing that there's a huge opportunity here. There's like very specific challenges that our field and other fields adjacent to ours and other fields are, you know, out there. It seems like we have all the solutions to a lot of the issues that are out there. We also have very specific problems and very kind of specific answers. So I wonder if you, we maybe just want to give a sketch of you maybe introducing the constructive conflict initiative or however you like, but how do you see conflict field fitting into dealing with the crazy issues in our democratic systems, political culture, hyperpolarization, and all the things that are happening right now? <laughs> well, one place to start, and you know, this is how you deal with the staggering complexity of things. And part of what, you know, we talked about a few sticking points where we have problems. We have a long list. There are lots and lots of these things. And we need projects focused on fixing each one, whether it's media bias, whether it's escalation loop, reforming the legal and political system, the list goes on and on. But one image that I have, and this is how you try to get a lot of people working on this, working on different things, not the same thing, without getting in this incredible conflict over, well, whose plan are we all going to follow to solve this? Because if you try to get agreement on how to do the whole big thing, you'll spend all your time getting that agreement and you'll get nowhere. That's what I call the Google Maps approach to problems. And it combines Google Maps and the crowdsourcing apps that run around it and allow you to report things like there's an accident here, or construction problem here. Or and you combine that with adopt a highway program. And the idea is to build, and this is something that could be built with software. 
is you build a system that highlights places within the society. So you have different kinds of things that go wrong, and they go wrong in different communities. So it's not only place-based, but it's the type of thing. Each thing needs people with different skills. So you've got a system, a bit like Google Maps, where you can look at your community and say, oh, we're having trouble with this, this, and this, and this. And the idea is you get somebody to volunteer, say, I'll take responsibility, or our group will take responsibility for this. And somebody else takes responsibility for something else. And you get a division of labor. You get a lot of different people working on different things rather than this big fight, which now, there, there's a competition in the world of books these days where everybody tries to say, hey, I've got these. One of our colleagues calls it the silver bullet illusion. <laughs> the, the, here, here's the guy who's figured it all out. And what it really requires is a lot of different people working on different things, slightly different goals, but all sort of trying to push the system in a more constructive direction. And once again, I have a slightly different take because I think I started in the middle and I would go back to the beginning with what we were trying to do with the Constructive Conflict Initiative is to get more people who were both in the conflict field and outside of the conflict field, and I'll talk about those two groups separately, to get them to realize that conflict was a big problem. The conflict people realize that, the non-conflict people maybe not. But it's something that everyone has a role in working on. So one of the things that we found several years ago when we were starting the initiative, and it's still true now, is that there are a lot of people, like you, for instance, who got trained in mediation and were doing divorce mediation, say, and when we talked about to them about political conflicts in the red-blue divide, they'd throw up their hands and they say, well, that's out of my area of expertise. I don't, I don't want to get involved in that. And we're trying to make people understand that we need to think about how we can scale up our skills and get involved in that because folks with the conflict skills, with the mediation skills, who understand what listening is, have tools that if they were spread much more widely, could indeed make massive differences, you said before. So we're trying to get the conflict field to get out of their niche areas. I'm not saying they can't do divorce mediation anymore, that's fine, but begin to think about how you can apply those same skills to bigger issues. One of the great examples of this is what used to be known as the Public Conversations Project. Now they call themselves essential partners. Way back when, it was a bunch of family therapists who did family therapy things with probably divorcing couples. And they were located in Boston, and there was an abortion clinic shooting where a guy named Jan Salvo shot up an abortion clinic and killed several people. And everybody was very upset about this, astounded that this could happen in their town. And these family mediators said, you know, the conflict between the pro-choice and the pro-life movement really is structured the same way as the conflicts between these couples that 
that we're working with. So they scaled up what they were doing to the abortion conflict first just in Boston, and now they do abortion. It'll be fascinating to know what they're doing right now around the country, and then they went beyond abortion to deal with lots of other issues, race, police, and climate, and all sorts of stuff. But they realized that those family therapy skills did scale, even though they didn't necessarily always just stick around a small table, although a lot of their work is still table-oriented. But it's an interesting jump from just a few people to issues that affect lots of people. And that's what we're trying to get lots of people in the conflict resolution field to do. And then we're trying to get people in other fields to say, yeah, this is something that I know something about. So we're talking now with a bunch of people who are into, I guess they call it restoring democracy or democracy preservation allied field talking to people in political science and international relations and peace building, which is surprisingly different from conflict resolution, and psychology and sociology and police chiefs. Early on, we worked with a bunch of police chiefs around Boulder, Denver area to try to figure out how to improve police community relations. Media. All sorts of professions need to be aware of how they are engaging in conflict, how they may be exacerbating conflict, and what they can do to try to make things better. There's also synthesis projects here. And this is one of the problems with what we call table-oriented processes, is they only involve a very small number of people. But and then saying, well, there are a lot of very interesting dialogues and you bring together different people and you get different ideas that come up in each dialogue. But, but what you can do is you can work together with media people and put together a composite, could be a television documentary, could be articles for distribution in mass newspapers and magazines that combine and then write more clearly and succinctly. People who know how to really communicate and make a story that's told sort of awkwardly by somebody who's not specializing that become really engaging. So you wind up synthesizing a lot of dialogues and presenting a relatively short and reasonable article that helps people who didn't have a chance to participate in that, really see the kind of high insights. One of the things that we have a couple of colleagues that are doing actually is to try to take what they've learned from trying to listen to all sides and craft it into a novel that makes it easier for people to see all sides and see how much trouble we're in if we don't find different ways of working through this. Now, I'm not sure they quite hit the bestseller yet, but you team up somebody like that with somebody who's a really good writer, then it becomes a way of reaching a much broader audience. And the time that can be these compelling, life-changing communication events that change the way, change your worldview, not just things that reinforce what you believed already, 
so seeing the dots connecting here. So, um, so you know, on one hand, obviously the, there's this piece of just getting the people who are in the conflict field, mediators, people who are experienced in talking, you know, getting people to talk across their differences and helping them recognizing that the skills that, that they have can apply to the bigger pieces that are happening. And that, you know, that's an interesting jump, you know, even as someone who has studied lots of different processes and worked in different locations and so forth, when I, if I would think about like a local public policy issue and we'll have a whole neighborhood that needs to talk about stuff, I could notice in myself like the hesitation to think like, oh, I don't know if I can handle this. This is really a big issue. But then I'm like, okay, in the world, I am definitely in the top 0.1 percentile of people who are qualified to help out with this, right? And and that realization is important, right? So we have the field of people who already have these skills kind of recognizing that that they can have play another, you know, like a, a role in some of these bigger issues at different ways and different scales and so forth. One of the key points that we're trying to make in the CRQ article and the discussion which have come out of the Constructive Conflict Initiative is we think people in the field really have a moral obligation to get engaged and to teach others, help others learn how to engage in conflict more constructively. Because if we don't do it, who's going to do it? We are the ones who are most able to help us get out of this hyperpolarization fix that we're in now. Everybody else is just taking a, I'm going to push my side harder, hoping that I can completely overwhelm the other side and prevail. And that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Also important not to come into this with too much in the way of my arrogance. Well, fit few things. And one of our colleagues, a guy named John Paul Lederach, has been pushing for years something he calls elicitive training. And this is a conflict intervention where you don't come in as the pros from Dover who know the answer. You come in to help people in a community facilitate a discussion where they re-remember and discover insights and skills within their community, within their cultural tradition that they maybe haven't thought of in relation to a particularly serious conflict. So what it becomes is a very low-key process of encouraging people to really rediscover what they know already and the wisdom that's embedded within their society and make use of it. Yeah, John Paul Lederach has been one of my great teachers from a distance and actually was just looking at preparing for peace before talking today. And so this is interesting, like a jump here then. So this conflict field, and then we have all these other people in all these other fields that have skill sets that are relevant. And I think that's a little bit of what you were saying, Heidi, that, that, you know, like police, media, like all these folks have interesting skill sets and things to contribute to the conversation. And there's both recognizing that they might be playing a role in exacerbating the current issues, but they also have a role in, you know, in changing them. A person that comes to my mind right there is Amanda Ripley, who's a journalist, and went and studied some more about conflict resolution and realized, oh my gosh, in the media, we're just 
exacerbating these problems all the time. And she came up with like her questions that could be her whole idea of like, how can we make this not be just a binary situation, a complicating the narrative the concept, which kind of gets us to like this idea of storytelling, right? And I think about kind of three things there. Like, so like one, like just like, as you're telling a story about a conflict that's happening in the community, like Amanda Ripley is pointing out that don't just frame this as this choice versus this choice, but actually make it, you know, find the whole complex web of relationships and framing the way we frame the story is important Then it's happening. But then I also think that there's an importance of telling the story of conflict resolution that has happened, right? Like the like processes that have happened. I, I think something that hurts our field sometimes is that the first thing we say at the introduction is, this is a confidential process and no one's going to talk about it. And, and so these outcomes happen, the world's changing as people are having things and they're not allowed to talk about it. Right. And, and of course, it, you know, people are a little scared when they go to do their conflict resolution or a dialogue. And so if you said, Hey, let's just make this public, you know, let's film it and share it. And I don't know if I want to do this anymore. So, I mean, it's a tricky puzzle there, it's, it, but I, it's very tricky. But I do think that there's space for more narrative, you know, that could respect some of the pieces. And there's a, California just passed like some pretty significant climate change legislation and some colleagues that were in conversations that were part of the communication and collaboration, you know, that helped set that up. But I think that that's important to recognize that this didn't just come out of people's heads. There was like a process of people actually talking to each other. We need to tell those stories more. And somehow we need to expose people more to like, this is actually happening. And people are, are resolving these tricky issues and they're figuring out how to communicate across their differences. It's happening and people aren't hearing those stories. And then I love also this piece about the novels or the narrative storytelling. How do you tell a story? You have a protagonist, you have an antagonist. And it seems like there's space these days, you know, because people like the TV shows where the where the protagonist is like a serial killer or, a, you know, or whatever, you know, and people are like Dexter or whatever. You know, people are interested in, I think it would be interesting to see it, to have more stories where you're like, here's the protagonist. This is the thing they're trying to do in the world. And they're, they're running into trouble. And then that actually is now the other person who is the antagonist is now the protagonist and they're trying to do something. And because that's what we find in this field is that everyone's a protagonist, right? And, and the antagonist is just another protagonist and telling the stories that have that kind of complexity in them, I think would be really interesting. So I'm interested to hear more about some of these novels that, that, that you're running into. One of the things I talk about is what I call the QED syndrome. And I took geometry in 11th grade. You'd do a proof. And when you were done with your proof, you wrote QED at the bottom. What people do is they listen to a story and a narrative. And they will get to a point where it seems that there's an absolutely uncontrovertible, clear conclusion. So then they say, thus it's proof. They, they don't understand that you can come at those same set of events and issues from a completely different direction in ways that lead to a completely different conclusion. And folks from another side 
get to another QED point where they think it's true. And both sides think, well, since he disagrees with me, he must think that whatever I'm for, he's against, which makes him evil, so that dehumanizes. You don't get the notion that somebody else sees something else that you're not seeing. And that's why they're reaching the conclusion they are. And they're getting the same sort of evil conclusion about you. But the notion of just how many dimensions are swirling around these conflicts, and they're not as simple as we think. Heidi has a whole video on our system. It's not us versus them. Complexify the issues. Really understand. We talk about the Same thing that Amanda Ripley's talking about, really. What are the forces or the challenges that are kind of pushing us into this us-them kind of perspective? I think it's a very human tendency to assume that what we see is right and anybody who says something different is wrong. I, I don't, I've never studied psychology. I just have seen this around the world on so many occasions and so many issues. I think it has to be pretty primordial that we have just a knee-jerk assumption that we're right and they're wrong. And there's also a tendency to frame things in win-lose terms. That's one of the things that we in the conflict field, all of us read way back in, when was it? I don't even remember when it was first written, but it's kind of the Bible of the fields getting to yes by Roger Fisher-Billiary and then Bruce Patton. And the eye-opener about that is that most conflicts don't have to be framed in win-lose terms. Most conflicts can be re-visualized as being win-win, and that book has, teaches folks how to do that. And I think they oversold it some and have claimed that they can solve absolutely everything with principal negotiation. And I go, well, you have to complexify things beyond that. And principal negotiation is not going to solve everything. But it's a good down payment. If you do everything that's in that book, you will be way ahead of where you are now. Will you be at the finish line? No, not necessarily. Not the kinds of societal level conflicts that we're looking at but you will be a heck of a lot better off. So I really think that what's important about our problems in our democracy now is everybody is framing things in us versus them, win-lose terms. We talk about the difference between power with and power over governance. Almost everybody is using power over strategies. And what part of one standard image of democracy is that it's elections. And elections are, in essence, a power over strategy. One side, guy made up the term years ago, 51% hammer effect. 51% of the people vote one way, and if we obey what the election said, that's a whole other story, but if you go along with the vote, then the 51% can hammer 
everything they want to onto the other side. It's, it's not consensus. It's essentially a power over strategy. And what we would like to see democracy change into is a power with strategy where people work collaboratively to solve our many problems. Where we have to have elections, there's no way we can have democracy without elections, but it can't, that can't be the end. We need to, to get our elected representatives to start using power with approaches and working collaboratively, collaboratively to solve our problems. But one of the great problems we have in doing that is the bad faith actors that have absolutely no interest in doing that, and they just as lead prevent you and I from doing that too. So I'll let Guy come back. Actually, that. I wasn't the bad faith actor thing we might come back to, but it's well, I mean, there are a lot of different folks that for different reasons have figured out that it's to their advantage to drive us apart. Whether it's politicians employing divide and conquer strategies that really like to be authoritarian rulers, whether it's external powers. There's some pretty scary stuff about what Russia and China and others are doing to inflame our tensions. There's the media. But the thing that, you know, we've been talking about complexifying the issue, or I'd like to come back to, which is really important, is the distinction between complex and complicated systems. Complex systems are, they are qualitatively different, and you need to understand that in order to figure out how to deal with things. Now, humans are really good at dealing with complicated systems. These are systems that we completely understand, we can engineer them, we can build astonishingly sophisticated gadgets. We can test them if they don't work, we fix them. And we tend to think in terms of tool building whenever we approach problems. The problem is that complex systems, like societies and ecosystems, aren't designed by some engineer who's got the blueprint and complete control over the system and can make and fix it. They evolve over time. Nobody understands exactly how they work. The course of the system is determined by processes of natural selection. You can't engineer it really because, and there's so many things happening at once that it's hard to tell what your, what, what the effect of what you do actually is. The analogy I use to describe this is imagine a pool table and you're trying to line up the perfect shot. This is what strategists try to do. Well, if we play this and this and this and we get all the angles right, all the balls will go in the pockets just right and everything will be great. We tend to think in terms of managing conflict in this book. And everybody's got a strategy. But what's really going on is you have countless millions of people trying to line up the perfect pool shot on the same table with zillions of balls at the same time. And whatever they do, you know, it, it turns into noise and chaos. So we know how to engineer and fix complicated systems. Complex systems require a completely different approach. But doctors do this. Your body is a complex system. They might like to make you think that they really understand it, but they don't really. It evolves. 
So what you do when you're trying to deal with a complex system is you do what doctors do. You say, well, I don't understand the whole system, but there are some things that go wrong in this system that I do understand. Some things I can cure. Broken leg, we set it, it heals, you're fine. Some things I can't cure, but I can give you symptomatic relief. Here's some antihistamines, take them every morning, and it won't be so disrupted. Some things they can't really do very well in symptomatic relief, but they can teach you how to live with it. Well, here's a wheelchair, and this is how you make it work. And sometimes they don't have answers, and go terminal diseases. We need to think about conflict that way, that instead of trying to fix the whole system, we can't. We find systems that will operate, pathologies, diseases, call it, within the larger conflict system. And you, know, you have a little hate spiral where people are getting madder and madder and madder at each other. If you can interrupt that, the system's a little bit better. So going back to my Google Maps analogy, what you try to do is identify all of these little diseases or pathologies or destructive dynamics. Where they're accidents where things that are going wrong, where things need to be done. And you get people to a doc say, okay, I'm going to do this. And what happens is you're not a grand fix, but you slowly nudge the system with lots of individual actions that cumulatively determine the sort of overall desirability of the operation system. And that's the way ecosystems evolve. And essentially what this is, is a strategy for facilitating the natural learning process. And you know, that's the way markets work, because nobody plans the whole thing, but people look for opportunities where they could get a little money by doing something to make things better. That's what we need to do with conflict. Yeah. So I'm interested to to follow up and find out more about kind of this, you know, Google Maps approach and and where this is, because I, I don't know, maybe there'd be some interesting connections to make there. But, you know, I, I think that just really want to lift up that we live in a complex system, like that our society is a complex system. Conflict is, you know, a symptom of living in a complex system and conflict is a complex system. And and the issues we're dealing with are wicked problems, which is kind of another way of thinking about it, just super challenging issues. They don't have easy answers. They don't have any single fixed answer. Lots of things that we're going to have to change. If you like touch the system, different things will happen. You know, so we live in this very complex system and the issues we're trying to deal with are complex not necessarily complicated. And I, I just I love making that distinction too. And we have a political system that's trying to organize it into yes, no, win, lose, this or that. And, you know, and, you know, to take any issue like, you know, in favor of gun control or not in favor of gun control, are you in favor of abortion or you're not in favor of abortion? You know, are you, you know, do you like the police or don't like the police? Do you, you know, believe in racism or don't believe like no 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 this is super super each of these are really really complex you know there's a project out there called the society library and 
they're building a library of, of to, to be able to make like super duper complex things digestible. And I'm just was you know, watching a video about it yesterday. And, um, anyways, they just gave the example about how there was a city council that was trying to figure out this like one little thing. And they're trying to figure out, do we do this or do we do that? And they thought it was a for and against kind of issue. And they like processed all the data and they're like, there are 25 dimensions to this one issue. <laughs> and that's about as simple as it gets, I think, you know, and it's a real challenge. And I think especially when we get to that 50, 49, 51 kind of situation, one of the kind of precursors to the OmniWin project was last year, January 6th, <laughs> I woke up and I was going to make a video talking about why people who are concerned about the the election, you know, have a legitimate concern in the sense that 49.5% of the population is legitimately concerned that they're not going to have a voice, you know, that they're not going to, their perspective won't be paid attention to, that they, what they wanted was being paid attention to for the last four years, and that soon that's not going to happen. And I was, as I was sitting down to do the recording, I checked the news and I'm like, Whoa. Uh, oh, and I'm like, I don't know if I should make a video right now explaining why these people have a legitimate concern. And, and it took me a couple months actually to just regroup and figure out how to make a essay about why it's time to upgrade our democracy. Cause I think that was what I wanted to say. And, and that's of course like a very intense example, but and when we distill it down to this and not recognizing the complexity, it's a, it's a really challenge, big challenge. And so I'm hearing some of your responses that, you know, finding, breaking them down into smaller parts, right? Like, can we deal with this part of it? Can we deal with this part of it? Can we deal with this symptom? You know, what can we fix and make a change and then see, okay, well, that worked or that didn't work, or it looks like it got a little worse for some reason. Because that's also the thing is that complex systems are also chaotic systems in the sense that if you tweak it a little bit, the cascading effects might actually not have the outcome that you were expecting them to have. And, you know, there's another piece that's interesting with complex systems. And I think you're starting to say this with, we're trying to figure out like large scale learning. We're trying to you know, get the system to start learning that there's like some cultural level. And I think this is kind of brings us back to where we were starting about you know, if people on a cultural level responded to disagreement with listening, right? And you could, you know, add that into the cultural algorithm. We're in a conflict. That means we're in a relationship and we're going to have to figure this out together. You know, like that was the, the next step in thinking when people got into conflict. Then those are the kinds of things that we could have interesting cascading effects. You know, also there's another way of responding to a complex system is to sort of how do we even understand with this, you know, and, and how do we think about it? And, and I think this is where raising the awareness of our field is so important and, and not just our field, but the dialogue field and, and all the different fields that are out there that can, you know, answer some of these issues. Thank you so much for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. I am so grateful to today's guest for being on today's podcast. 
And if you liked what they had to say and you want to learn more about them or any of the things we discussed in the episode today, check them out in your show notes right there on your podcast app or come on down to omniwinproject.com where you can get even more information. You can find a video version of this podcast as well as the transcript. And there are many more episodes that are going to be coming soon. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast right now and share it with a friend while you're at it. As you go into the rest of your day, I invite you to remember that we are all co-creating our future right now. And we all have a role to play in the whole. Thank you for listening to the Omni Win Project podcast. Have a wonderful day.